0: Michael Reddington, CFI, is a certified forensic interviewer and the president of Inquasive, a company that integrates the key components of effective non confrontational interview techniques with current business research for executives. Using his background in forensics and his understanding of human behavior through interrogation, Reddington teaches businesses to use the truth to their advantage. And now he's teaching it to physicians. We first learn what a forensic interviewer is and why there should be more of them in the world. We talk about trust. How to gain it, keep it, and avoid losing it, mostly through how we demonstrate how we've been listening. Patient diagnoses are sometimes part of their identity, so we talk about an approach that can help you if you're about to change a long-held diagnosis, and how to interrupt a patient without alienating them. Michael Reddington received his bachelor's degree in business administration and management from Southern New Hampshire University and received additional training on negotiation and leadership from Harvard University. He's led over 1,000 programs and educated over 10,000 participants from companies, government agencies, and executive groups across the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, Ireland, Europe, Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. Find him at Inquasive.com.
1: Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Before we get into the show, let's talk about
0: this week's sponsor, Deputy. At your practice, what happens when staff call out sick? How much time does it take to find replacements who can fill in? If you need to cancel appointments because you're short-staffed, what does that cost your practice? Deputy is a simple app that's helped more than 250,000 workplaces tackle this problem. Deputy makes it easy to schedule staff in line with patient demand, communicate schedules with your team, and instantly find replacements when someone calls out sick. To learn more or try Deputy out for free, go to doctorpodcastnetwork.com/ deputy. Michael Reddington, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. So what's a forensic interviewer? And you're a certified forensic interviewer. So what is the certifying
2: body? What's this all about? I appreciate your asking. So a certified forensic interviewer, probably a comparison that a lot of people will be familiar with, it would be like a CPA for accounting. So it's not necessarily a job in and of itself. It's a certification, a designation of expertise, if you will, in the field. So I guess the CPA would be the first comparison that comes to mind for me. I believe the second half of the question was, who's the certifying body? I'll give you the shorter version of that story. So the body that originally put the exam together was the Center for Interviewing Standards and Assessment. They've since evolved and joined the International Association of Interviewers. So at this point, the governing body is the International Association. Who is that? Who decides
0: who that is and who gets it? I would assume it's a private organization, right? It's not like governmental
2: regulated body. That is correct. So in order to achieve the designation, you have to pass the exam like any other professional designation. So Mm -hmm. it's not just handed out based on years of experience or you did one good case. Like You have to meet all the qualifications. You have to pass the exam. And like any other certification, you have to stay current on your re-education. That is all in play. The board of the International Association of Interviewers is comprised of experts in relation to interview and interrogation from across the public sector, private sector, the world of academia, federal law enforcement. So it really is comprised of people. I think to say all would be too broad of a statement, but many of the tangents or aspects involved with interview and interrogation, because our goal really is to make sure that anyone who earns that designation maintains a level of expertise and preparation that they can literally be dropped in any interview or interrogation. So what types of professions
0: are there involved in that? Because I just think someone trying to extract information from... Something law enforcement related or military sure. related. That's all sure. I think of. Like you're naming all these
2: other professionals. Who are they? What do they do? That's a great question as well. And when we think about interrogation, often we think about what we get from TV or what we get from the media. That's all I know. Yeah. And that's a good thing, by the way. That that's quite all right. What we see from there is typically those two categories, law enforcement and military. And you can file like federal agents, FBI on top of that. But really. There's an argument to be made that in your average day, week, or month, there is far more interrogating being done across the private sector than there is in the world of law enforcement and military. When you look at organizations that experience any type of theft or fraud or workplace violence or discrimination or any of these other situations, there are teams of investigators, auditors, compliance officers, forensic accountants. There's any number of titles. But when you look at some of the industries where it's more prevalent, banking, insurance, a lot of big tech data where you have IP and and insights that you don't want competitors to have. Look at the retail market. You look at pharmaceuticals. There's a fair amount of investigations that take place in hospitals and those types of facilities. Manufacturing, of course, especially if they're manufacturing anything that is governed or has oversight from a government body and has compliance. So there is likely far more interviewing and interrogating done on a daily basis, not just in the world of law enforcement and military, but across the private sector than a lot of people realize.
0: So why would a physician find this useful? Because a forensic interviewer, they're trying to extract information for someone who doesn't want to share it. I would think that our patient's would want to tell us what's wrong with them, right? They want to share. They're bursting at the seams to share information with us. We're not having to pull it out of them. Although that being said, often we are because there's the story that they want to tell us. I often tell this to my patients because I'm in ear, nose and throat doctor. So I see a lot of patients who have dizziness. So what I tell them at the beginning is there's the informa- there's a story you want to tell and there's the information that I need. And they often don't intersect. So I'm going to be interrupting you a lot to get what I need. So I really do need to pull it out of them, but they share it willingly. So what would a physician need to learn from a forensic interviewer?
2: And you said actually a series of things in there that are quite important. Probably wrong. No, I'm not going to go that far. No, no, no. I would like to think as well that the majority of people that seek medical attention are doing so with the mindset that I understand I have to give this doctor information that's going to help this doctor in whatever that context is. However, a couple of things that we have to stop and think about is part of that process. One, you nail, they want to give you their story. And that story could be largely true. It could be entirely true. It could also be partially true and they could be focusing on areas that may or may not be diagnostically valuable. For the service you want to provide and the care that you want to give. So, part of it could be just the contextual understanding of what is important for them to communicate. The other part is it's important for people in all contexts to consider that the number one fear that will stop most people from doing most things isn't failure, it's embarrassment or feeling judged. And when we think about trust and, and trusting medical professionals, and that's why we go to see them. A word that's synonymous with trust that often gets overlooked is vulnerability. So for somebody to sit in front of a doctor and give them the real story could involve varying levels of embarrassment. And this could vary from person to person and doctor to doctor and discipline to discipline. So I certainly don't want to paint with too broad a brush. But in these conversations, it's important for, I would assume, many medical professionals to understand. That just because they have somebody in front of them doesn't mean that they can just say please, and they're going to get all the relevant information they need in a logical, chronological order to help them diagnose and move forward. So when we talk about disciplined listening, there really are two sides to that disciplined listening coin. The first is that strategic observation side. How do we become more effective listeners? And the second is that persuasive communication side. And they really exist in tandem. Because the more effective our persuasive communication efforts are, the more intelligence people will share with us. The more we will then have in order to consider and ask better follow-up questions, and the cycle continues. So using those both hand-in-hand is really important. And I'll pause in just a second. But really, to hopefully get back and wrap up answering the question, and if I didn't, hit me again, please, is really understanding that if we want people to share the entire story with us, Oftentimes, we have to go beyond what we think is necessary in order to help them feel comfortable with the level of vulnerability, avoid feeling embarrassed, and save face or protect their self-image so they don't feel like they're compromising who they are as part of this conversation as they give you the information you need to treat them. It's interesting that
0: you say that without compromising who they are, because I know that's not the entire point of what you were saying, but I think it's an important sub point because sometimes I see patients that come in with sinus problems or they think they have sinus problems. They have sinus pain, sinus pressure, nasal congestion. And as it turns out, they don't have sinus infections. They have migraines. And so they don't think of themselves as someone who has migraines. They think of themselves as someone who has sinus infections. So I need to somehow unravel these years of them going to see other doctors, getting antibiotics, the pressure going away, because that's what happens with migraines anyway, most of the time they just go away. These many occasions in their lives that have reinforced their identity around this illness and I need to unravel that. So actually, can we go off on that? We're going to circle back to trust. We're going to circle back to listening. But that concept of identity, so that I find really challenging. Or someone comes in and and says, got a cough. It's from my post nasal drip. No, it's from your asthma. I don't have asthma you get chest colds? Yeah. Do you get bronchitis? Yeah. You have asthma. But I'm 65 years old. I've never had asthma. Yes, you've had it your whole life. It was just never diagnosed. So that's why you feel better every time someone gives you steroids. So how do I get someone who came in thinking, I'm not a person that have asthma, to leaving, I'm someone who has
2: asthma? You know, you said it was just kind of something that I said at the end, and it was with how I structured it. I love how you latched on to that. Because when we think about really achieving commitment over compliance, compliance is essentially, okay, fine. Yeah, sure. I'll accept that for right now to end the conversation. And maybe I'll do a few things in line with your diagnosis and your care recommendations. But if I'm not fully committed to that and I don't believe what it is, then I'm not going to take care of myself and I'll be seeing you again soon or another doctor with a counter argument as to why this isn't my fault. Works for
0: a round of antibiotics,
2: doesn't work for taking your insulin. Yes. Now, if they're committed to it, Now they're going to start taking their insulin. They're going to start changing their diet. They're going to start changing their exercise program. There'll be ebbs and flows and peaks and valleys like everybody else. I'm not saying they're going to start running triathlons, but they'll be committed to it over a period of time. So when we think about moving people from resistance to commitment, I like to say roughly, and this number might be low, 85% of the battle of moving somebody from resistance to commitment is lining up what we want them to do with their self-image. If we can line up what we want them to do with their self-image, commitment falls into place. But the farther away that gap is, or the larger that gap is, the more difficult it becomes. There's a couple alternatives for it. And believe it or not, one of them might be very counterintuitive for a lot of people. because it's not how we were taught to speak growing up. Limit the amount of times we say the word you in our explanation. I mean, imagine if I'm sitting in front of you and I say, "Well, Brad, I appreciate you walking me through all that. As a matter of fact, you don't have sinus problems. You have migraines. And I know you have migraines because these are the symptoms you're describing. This is the relief you're feeling. This is the typical time frame. This is the typical cycle that you go through. and what you're describing to me is consistent with migraines. You don't have sinuses, you have migraines. You don't mean anything malicious by that. You're trying to educate them. But every time we say the word "you." we're punching somebody right in their self-image. So it tends to put people in a defensive posture where they actually become more resistant. So a tweak that we can use there that is super powerful is instead of saying, Brad, you, now it can be Brad, thank you for walking me through all that. And the more I listen, everything I'm hearing lines up with what we often get from people who are surprised to find out that they have believed sometimes for decades that they have been struggling with chronic sinus issues and all along what it actually has been migraines. And they don't see themselves as migraine sufferers. They see themselves as somebody who deals with sinus problems. But once they're actually able to switch and welcome a new treatment cycle and do different things. Here's where you can tell about a doctor. They're able to quickly get the situation under control and maybe not stop migraine headaches, but at least corral them faster. Would it help to
0: tell it more as like an anecdote? Like, you know what? My aunt Martha, she had something similar to that. And as it turned out her whole life, she even had yeah. sinus surgery. And then she found a doctor, looked at the turns out it was migraines the whole time. And I think you've got something similar to that. Like instead of, I mean, it sounds a little sounds a little folksy, but might roll off the tongue for some rather than
2: something more nebulous, like what we often see in this sure. situation. That's a great alternative. And that alternative, it's even more effective if the patient you're talking to sees similarities between themselves and the person you're talking about. So if you're talking to me in a story about Aunt Betty, That might work, but I don't know that I'm going to see a lot of things in common between me and Aunt Betty. You You guys have the same facial hair. (laughs) I've been grooming it for years, trying to look just like her. (laughs) But now if you told it about your cousin Joe, then maybe it might resonate a little more. So by all means, I'm not advocating lying. I'm not advocating making stories up at all. But... But no, where I was going with this yeah. is for many doctors, they've seen so many people and they have so many experiences throughout their career. And even if it's not you, it's somebody else in your practice. So now the story could be instead of my Aunt Betty, it's my partner here at the practice saw Johnny, who is the local high school football coach, and he thought, da da da. Now you're telling a sincere, authentic story that really is important from a delivery standpoint and from a credibility standpoint. Because if somebody is already thinking, no way, man, BS, the same migraines. I know me, and I know it's sinus. If they feel like there's any thread of weakness in your story, oh, no, you're making that story up. You're wrong. So it is actually important in this situation to tell a story that is true and authentic so we don't risk reinforcing their negative expectations. You said it just like a lot of patients say it. I
0: know my body. I've been having this for years. I know what it is. Then we've got to rip that away from. So it helps to frame it that way. That's really helpful. So one of the other things that you mentioned was trust. Yes. Right. And so this is a situation also that's a bit different from interrogators, right? You need to earn trust. Whereas it doesn't always work for all doctors, right? If you're going to the ER, you haven't chosen your doctor, your anesthesiologist, you haven't chosen your radiologist. You never meet them anyway. That doesn't <laughs> but if you're walking into my office, either you made the appointment or someone made the appointment. So you've chosen me. You might've chosen me because I'm the only one that had an opening when you could go, but nonetheless, you chose me. So there is a little trust inherent to the relationship. So how do we use that trust? Well, first I would say, how do we lose that trust? What are some big red flags that we shouldn't do? And then we'll work on strengthening
2: the trust. Love the switch to the setup of the question. And I love what you said that there should at least be a little trust when somebody comes in, because there's a big difference between that initial trust. Okay, you're clearly a doctor. You should have everything under control here and be able to help me. There's a big leap between that initial trust and that full trust that we're looking to develop as the relationship continues. But when it comes to destroying it, there's some things that doctors do, unfortunately, quite frequently. I'm not saying it's your audience to destroy trust. One is to come in and ask repeat questions. So for me, I've got triglyceride issues, that's hereditary, they're off the charts. I've got diet restrictions and all this other stuff. So recently my wife and I moved, so we had a new primary care physician. I literally called and spoke to the nurse and gave the nurse the rundown of everything. I don't think that I know my body better than the doctor, but let's save time. Here's everything that I think should be helpful. So now I come in. It's the same nurse that comes in to see me once I'm in the examination room. And she starts by asking me all of the questions that she asked me on the phone one week prior. Same person, same questions. I patiently answer hers. Now she leaves and the doctor comes in. The doctor comes in, sits down, puts his hands on his keyboard, looks at his computer, and without even looking at me, asks me the same exact questions that his nurse did. 15 minutes prior to him coming into the room. And that's just one example. That's a great way. There's a series of behaviors there to tell somebody that I don't care. I've got 17 minutes to get you out of this room and get the next person in. That's my focus. People will evaluate or judge how we communicate with them as proof for how much we respect them, as proof for how much we care about them. When somebody goes to see a doctor, it's because often they're looking for expertise, care, advice, direction for something that they know little to nothing about. And to your earlier point, might be completely confused on whether they realize it or not. So in this situation, oftentimes has been told to me in various contexts, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. When doctors literally walk in, They don't go straight to the computer. They don't stand at the door. They approach the patient. I know with COVID right now, things are different. If it's appropriate, shake their hand. If it's not fist bump, if it's not elbow, if it's not, stand close and acknowledge them. Look them in the eye. Call them by name. If you already have information from them, start by summarizing a little bit of what you know before you ask the question so you're not apparently ignoring everything that they've already said. A lot of the active listening skills we've all been hit over the head with are good in this situation. Active listening is really synonymous with attentive listening. So if we look like we're paying attention, that's great. But there is only one way to actually prove to somebody that we listen, which is to follow up. And this does fall into the typical active listening. Are we summarizing? Are we asking good follow up questions that show that we care? Or are we just going down our mental check the box checklist? in order to get to a diagnosis that we're already like 70% of the way to, and we think we can hurry up and get on to the next conversation patient in the next room. So really at least slowing down the perception of the conversation, increasing the perception of individual care and attention. And one of the things that we like to say a lot is let the conversation come to you. Anytime we value time over quality suffers, that's true in production. That's true in decision-making that's true in relationships. So if in the back of our mind, we're thinking, okay, and I don't know what the standard number is for practices, but we're thinking I've got 15 minutes to finish this conversation and get to the next. If I can get this one done in seven, then I can actually stop at my office, voice record my notes for the conversation, get a drink of water and then go see the next patient. So I'm going to try and get this done in seven because I think I know where she's going. Well, now there's all kinds of cognitive biases that are affecting the conversation, and our priority is literally now ending the conversation in seven minutes, as opposed to truly connecting and serving the patient in front of us. And please, I'm not trying to sound assumptive. I know that doctors have extremely challenging jobs and days, and although it's been in different contexts, I know exactly what it's like to be forced to have conversations with people that aren't conversing with you in the way that you would like them to, and the stress and the emotions and internal monologue that comes along with that. I get it. But these would be the behaviors that fall in line that will go a long way to destroying trust. I get it. I had something
0: similar. I went to three dermatologists over a few years about it because nobody could figure it out. Finally, I saw a pattern. I was like, yeah, you know, whenever I exercise, my face gets bright red. And then sometimes I'll get, he goes, oh, you have rosacea. And I was like, uh, uh, okay. Like I saw the chair of a department a couple of years ago about it and she couldn't figure it out. And you figured it out in 10 seconds. Sure. And as it turns out, he was right. Now I'm fine. But the fact that he was on it in 10 seconds should have been impressive, but I didn't get to tell my story and it yeah. didn't feel good to be able to not tell my story. So even though he solved my problem which is what I came in there for, to have my problem solved, it doesn't leave as good a feeling. You know, he gets a three and a half star, four star review, but doesn't get that five star review, really letting me tell my story. So I totally get what you're saying. What about interrupting? Because you said, demonstrate that you're actually paying attention by good follow-up questions that really engage the patient to let them know that you're paying attention. Because interrupting, we're always told, doctors interrupt too quickly. However, It's also a tool that demonstrates that you're actually listening, right?
2: So is interrupting okay? Occasionally when done properly. How about that for a qualified answer? All right, give us the rules though. As a general rule, interrupting turns an adult conversation into a parent-child conversation. I know more than you. I know where this is going. My time is more valuable than yours. Tell me what I need to know in the order. I need to know it. And then I'll tell you what you need to know after. So it really resets the dynamic of the conversation and can do more damage than good. There is an interruption technique that can work well when it's executed with patience. Patience, like let the conversation come to you with a C, not the T. If I am to a point where I'm like, ooh, I need to know more about that. Or ah, they're going off track. Or wait a minute, they said A and B. If I can get C, I think I know where this is. When it comes to interrupting, I get chuckles when I teach this sometimes because we often think of the worst person that we've ever talked to that runs on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. When people are talking at some point in time, they're going to have to stop and take a breath. It's not a long breath for some people and they might go longer than we're expecting. So when we interrupt and we want to do so in a productive manner, as soon as I figure out the next question I want to ask or the next place I want to go, I'm going to park that. And I'm going to start listening for a bridge. I'm going to start listening for something they say that I can use to get me from where they are to where I want to be. So I don't want it to be a cold interruption. Well, thank you, Bradley. Actually, hang on. What I need to know is, okay, okay, Bradley, I heard that. What I really need to know is, well, Bradley, stop right there. Or even worse, bam, Like just throw the question out with no introduction whatsoever. Instead, I want to create that bridge. And I'm going to wait for them to stop to breathe before I do it. Because at least when they stop to breathe, I'm not talking over them. I'm minimizing some of this dad effect and some of that parent-child effect. So as soon as I hear them stop to breathe, and it's a short window, generally I'm going to come in with their name first. Either their name and thank you or thank you and then their name. Because thank you is polite. And as I'm sure you and many of your listeners have been taught, people like hearing their name and it generally gets their attention. So if I can say thank you and their name, that's usually enough to slow them down to give me the window. So now I might be able to say, thank you, Brad. As I was listening to you describe that sinus pressure and where it was, I'd be very interested to know. And now I ask the follow-up question. So I'm using words that they just gave me. Thank you, their name, words they just gave me. And now I'm asking the question with curiosity. I would be very interested to know. So now I'm increasing the perception of importance of what they're trying to tell me. So while technically this is still definitely interrupting, it's doing so at a time and in a way that should reduce many of the negative impacts and motivate them to share more information.
0: Any alternatives to thank you? Because as I'm running that over in my head, it does make it sound a little parental. Well, thank you for just giving me that little bit of useless information. I'm now going to try and get more useful information out sure, of Sure, sure.
2: My sarcasm filter has to be about 10 feet thick at all times to get from what I'm really thinking to what I'm saying. So to hear that resonates with what my internal monologue would probably sound like in that situation. So if we want to avoid saying thank you, again, the key with thank you is to avoid that sarcastic tone. Thank you. like A sincere thank you is generally good. I'd like to focus
0: a little more on what you just said. Michael, I'd like to focus a little more. Michael, before you go on to the next part of that story,
2: Michael, let's Love take it. a step back and- I think, I think those okay. are all good alternatives. I would okay. still advocate using the bridge after that, words that they gave you to get yeah. where you want to go. Yes. I think those are all good
0: alternatives. Okay. Trying to visualize myself doing it and I'll try it. I'll try it. People complain a lot that doctors aren't listening, right? They don't listen to us, they didn't hear us, they didn't listen to me the whole time. But my listeners are special slice of the population. Because the reason that they're listening to this podcast is because they're trying to get better at stuff like this. And if they're trying to get better at stuff like this, they're actively working on it, which tells me that they are probably much better than the people that think they don't need to work on it. Why? Because they do actively reflect on their own interactions with patients and try to get iterative about it and improve on it. So they are listening. They're not just trying to race out of the room. But sometimes that doesn't come across in our interactions. We Mm -hmm. are listening, but it doesn't seem like we're listening. How do we
2: make it seem like we're listening in addition to the actual listening we're already doing? There is one thing, and I'm going to get to it in just a second. I'm going to start someplace else. One thing, doctors have an enormous, enormous advantage in this one area. They have an advantage over most other professions, and it is significant. They also have a trap they can fall into that is analogous with many other technical experts. And oftentimes, technical experts, doctors included, have a tendency, and this is natural because of how much they know and the decisions they're responsible to make. So this isn't negative. They have a tendency to listen to diagnose as opposed to listening to learn. And if you put them on a Venn diagram, there's definitely overlap in there. But as you start straying too far one way or the other, if we're just listening to diagnose, there's any number of biases and assumptions and negative impacts there. But if we really focus on trying to be in a learning mentality, if we're learning, we're listening. And I'm not saying a patient is going to educate a doctor on something totally new, but there might be a different perspective. There might be a different edge, a different slant, a different part of the experience for the patient might be different. So there's at least some opportunity in there to learn. So although this is more internal than external, our behaviors tend to reflect our focus area. So if we're focusing on listening to learn and not listening to diagnose, if the diagnosis is a natural byproduct of learning, then we're more likely to exhibit behaviors that should communicate that we are listening. Doctors have a huge opportunity. Doctors are one of the few professions in this country and on the planet, it is okay to touch
0: people. I certainly hope so. Otherwise, (laughs) I'm in a heap of trouble.
2: Yes, you and everybody else listening to this. So literally, when you have your hands on somebody, you are well within their personal space in what is technically their intimate zone. And you have the opportunity to connect with them at a level that most other people don't. And the way to do that, again, takes patience with a C, is to over explain what you're doing and why and tie it into what they are saying. I see an ENT, I've got chronic ear problems. My son sees an ENT, he's got ear and nose, nothing major, but just chronic things. We gotta go get cleaned up and taken care of. So I don't know a whole lot and I don't wanna be too with something. If you're seeing a patient and you've got their hands above their eyes, you've got their hands around their nose and on their sinus areas, instead of just saying, lean back for a moment, I wanna just feel and get an idea for what might be going on. Literally explain to them, what you are feeling for, and why it would be important. There's a huge difference between trust and faith. All religious connotations aside, please. We tend to trust what we have tangible experience with. We tend to have faith in things that we believe, but lack that tangible experience. So to get back to that doctor that said, you have rosacea, and he was right. Well, congratulations, Indy 500 diagnosing that but you didn't get to share your story. And although he was correct, his diagnosis initially spawned doubt, not confidence, because of how quickly and plainly he gave it to you. Now, in fairness to him, it was probably common sense. It was something he'd seen a thousand times. So to communicate it that way to you was just natural. But if he had taken the time to actually explain What rosacea is, where it comes from, what its common triggers or onsets are, how long it typically feels and lasts. Now in your head, you're going, yeah, he's right. That's me. And his diagnosis time was no longer, but his explanation time was now slower and in more depth. So it increases your confidence. So literally for any doctor out there, whether you're feeling somebody's face, whether you have their hands on their back, their arm, their stomach, their leg, whatever it is, and even if you're not touching them, if you're asking just questions. As you begin to transition from obtaining information to sharing information, work what they told you into your explanation. So as you were explaining to me these symptoms, that typically correlates with this diagnosis or these potential issues. What I'm going to do just momentarily is conduct a quick examination to gather some more information and figure out which one it may be. And I'll explain to you what I'm doing as I do it. And now, literally, if we over communicate the process while we're conducting the examination, the level of trust and confidence that we're inspiring skyrockets because we're now talking to somebody that probably understands zero about what we're doing. And we're not only working what they told us into the explanation but treating them like an equal by walking through
0: all of it. I'd also like to tie that into some episodes that I did a while ago, one with Dr. Megan Gerber and the other one with Dr. Crystal Beal, where we talked with Dr. Gerber about trauma-informed care. So in trauma-informed care, you have to assume that your patient has undergone a trauma. So when you are examining them, you have to let them know exactly, like you said, what you're going to do and why you're going to do it before you lay hands on them. And Dr. Crystal Beal took that a step further and said, do it in such a way that asks permission. So you have to ask their permission to do it. So you're tying that in one, let them know you're going to do it two, ask their permission to do it. And you're adding another layer of explain why you're doing it and tie it into the story that you told them. So I think those concepts layer really well and they tie together really well.
2: I support everything that they said not that my opinion was asked, but certainly, and even carrying it beyond those trauma situations to really the run of the mill patient that we
0: have. The assumption needs to be that they have had trauma because it's so common. You should be assuming right. it in everyone. And no. there's no harm in saying, is it okay if, right? Zero harm. Yeah. And then it allows them that vulnerability to say, actually, no. And here's why. Amen. Amen. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. The run-of-the-mill person, you just have no idea. You have no contact. never know.
2: Yeah. I'm not a mechanic. My brother knows vehicles inside and out. I don't. I chose not to listen when my dad was teaching us that, and I've lived to regret it. My brother has made a great living off of it, running his own auto body shops. So if I take my truck in for service and the head mechanic comes out and says, dude, your transmission's gone. You need a new transmission. I don't know enough about transmissions to know if that's true or not. I know that mechanic likely has financial goals and average ticket price and all these things he's trying to meet. So I might really need a new transmission. But my first reaction is, yeah, I do. Whereas if he comes out and says, hey, let me ask you a question. You know, over the last maybe 5,000 miles or so, can you walk me through some of the things you've been experiencing as your truck shifts gears, particularly at high speed? And now if I start giving him some of that information and he says, yeah, oftentimes what you're feeling through the pedals in your feet is actually indicative of these three things. And when we checked your transmission, we found where in these four areas and it looks like your transmission is going to need to be replaced soon. And if they would allow it, as a matter of fact, if you want to come with me, I'll show you. Now, at the end of that conversation, I'm going, damn, I've got to replace my transmission. So if doctors think of themselves as technical experts, you have to communicate messages to people that may not understand or may have doubts communicating that in a way where we ease that doubts and give them more information that we feel should be necessary. We're likely doing our job. And I want to be respectful of your time. There's a way to ask for follow-up questions here too, that I can share real quick. Yeah, please. So oftentimes after we give that explanation, It's really common to say, do you have any questions? And if we say to somebody, do you have any questions? Believe it or not, the implied expected answer to that is no. I've got to move on to my next patient. I want that to be no. I'm an expert. I just told you everything you need to know through my expert lens. I have to be polite and ask you if you have any questions, but you shouldn't because I'm a genius and I got someplace else to be. So literally the implied expected answer is no. If we're in a situation where we really would like somebody to ask a question if they have it, I like to use a bit of a self-effacing intro and ask it this way. Hey, Brad, I appreciate your time today. Thank you for coming to see me. As we went through that, that all made sense up here for me. But I know oftentimes what makes sense up here and what makes sense out here can be two different things. So let me ask you this. How many questions did I create for you? And now if I say, how many questions did I create? This isn't on you not being smart enough to understand what I said. This is on me for not hitting this on the right level for you. And now you're far more likely to ask the follow-up questions that might truly be necessary for you to commit to the treatment plan necessary to make you better. Just
0: like when you say, did I explain that clearly rather than did you understand, right? Puts the onus on you rather than them so that they feel like they're inadequate. It's your inadequacy. You're owning that for not explaining it well.
2: Yes, I love that. I love that framing. So tell us about Inquasive. I appreciate you asking. So Inquasive is an education-based organization. We teach leaders, whether that is in the medical field, the business field, beyond how to use the truth to their advantage by doing a lot of the things we talked about tonight, applying ethical and moral, really, persuasive, and observation skills. That's what we work on. And we do so through educational seminars, through presentations, keynotes, different resources, conversations like this. You know, for us, it's really all about providing people with the tools they need to increase commitments to action and reduce missed opportunities. Love it. I love it. So where can people find it? They can find us at inquasive.com. And that is I-N-Q-U-A-S-I-V-E.com. I'm not a huge social media guy. So if people are looking on social media, the best place to find me would be LinkedIn. And that's it, Michael Reddington, CFI.
0: Fantastic. Michael, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. It's going to help us earn that trust, keep that trust and inform the patients that we are really listening. So I appreciate that. Thank you for having me. Take care. What a great show with Michael Reddington of Inquasive. Before we end, here's a quick reminder. If you want to boost efficiency across your practice and make staff scheduling easier, try the Deputy app. You can try this award-winning technology for free by going to drpodcastnetwork.com slash deputy. That's doctorpodcastnetworkcom
1: slash deputy. That was Dr. Bradley Block at The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on The Physician's Guide to Doctoring.